our series on the church. And um, today, we're going to be covering the church from Exodus to exile. So the church from Exodus to exile. So taking a look at that, taking a snapshot of how does this idea of the church develop, and then look at the, look at, knuckle down on it, say, well, what do we learn from that particular period? And then hopefully we'll have a deeper understanding of what God is doing um, then and now to contribute to what we are doing even right now and how we do it and how maybe to inform us to do it better. So bear with me um, because we've got two main texts today, but one key text. Um, so we're going to be reading from Exodus 19 and we're going to be also looking at Hebrews 18 to Hebrews 12, 18 to 29. So everybody there that was trying to look for Hebrews 18, it's a miss, miss said. Let me start by praying, first and foremost. Lord, we are grateful for, uh, again, this, this your church and the local expression of it. We thank you that, Lord God, that this is us doing what you want us to do, and not merely us, as it were, creating a fan club or an appreciation or a, you know, um, for, for what it is to be a Christian, Lord God. We're, we are being obedient, Lord, and, and Lord Father, we want to see as we look through your text today how that is true. Lord Father, through difficult times there, Lord Father, we are You've, you've kept your church there, Lord Father. This is by far not the most difficult there, Lord God, in church history. But Lord, nonetheless, Lord, we need your help. We need your guidance there, Lord Father. We need, again, to reinvigorate. For those who already have a strong idea of what the church is, reinvigorate there, Lord God, their, their knowledge, their devotion, their understanding, so that they stay committed. For those who are probably not so strong in their understanding of what the church is. Lord, my prayer is that you would help them, Lord God, to, as it were, go to the text and look and see the Lord Father, the pattern of your work there, Lord God. And Father, it's not to be denied. And that, Father, they will come to that place there, Father, where they will be, um, again, edified and have that um, strong foundation of what it is to be a part of God's people and how to do that well. So, Lord, pray help me, Lord, communicate this. Um, in, Lord God, with the, with, the, with the limited means that I have, Lord. But, Lord, ultimately, I pray that you will speak to this, your church, Lord God. Speak to us all, we pray. In Jesus' name. Amen. So, we left off last week with Abraham in um, Genesis 17. And so... The story continues, and so the story now builds, and we go two generations after Abraham and to the house of Jacob, and in particular, dealing with the house, the brothers or the sons of Jacob, or Israel, as he is probably later known as, and the issues that develop there, in particular, with Joseph and his brothers, and Joseph suffers injustice at the hands of his brothers. And he is sent to Egypt as a slave. 
This act is supposed to finish off the relationship with his family, because again, remember, they were considering death before slavery became an option, and it was the softer option, and they fell for it. But it was the whole idea that we will now draw a line under this Joseph issue who we don't like because we believe that he is boastful. But this, however, propels him to his destiny. Those very dreams that they despise him for, they now put into action. Because he is going to be the one that saves the life of his family. The separation of Joseph from his brother seems to also follow that pattern of the church as righteous Joseph is gathered away from his sinful brothers. So, in contrast to their dad, the brothers don't seem to hold to what I would guess I would call Yahwehism as strongly as it seems their dad does. And we see this in particular to two key, two key chapters. One, Genesis 34, where we see both Simeon and, Le- and Levi slaughter a whole village for the rape of their sister Dinah. And this obviously irks Israel to the point where he has to run and go to somewhere else to live because he believes that he has now made, his family has now made a stench in the land. And so he has to move. And he derides his children and, 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 and to some extent curses them on the basis of it. What have you done to us? And so we get a picture and, and, and these verses are Seemingly sidesteps of the story because, in a sense, Joseph now becomes the main character or is going to become the main character, but they give us an insight as to what we're dealing with. And Joseph is very different in his approach to God. We also have to assume that even Genesis 38 and 39, so in 38 is Joseph now arriving in Egypt. And in 39, we get that picture of Judah with Tamar. And even there, we see this contrast of the lives. We're here, Judah is being unfaithful in the land of promise, whilst Joseph is living faithfully outside the land of promise. And so, subtly, I believe, there is a, a depiction that the place of safety is not where Joseph's brothers live, but it's actually in Egypt, where Joseph is. Where his brothers are being unfaithful, that separation, that pattern that we're seeing, where God's people are being separated and are distinguished, that's what we're seeing again, I believe, in those two, specifically in those two particular chapters where 38 and 39 of Genesis. So when the famine hits Israel, or hits the whole of, you can say, the majority of the Middle East, his family now move. Eventually, obviously, obviously, Joseph and his brothers get reconciled, but now the family moves to Egypt. And to some extent, it seems to confirm this place that in order for God's people to be saved, they need to be gathered in Egypt, as was prophesied to, Joseph, to, to Abraham, that your people will go to Egypt and I will deliver them out of Egypt. 
But Egypt at this point becomes, as it were, the type of the church. Like the ark. Where, is, where are we going to be saved? In the ark. Where are we going to be saved? In Egypt. And so the pattern of God's people, of where God's church is, changes. And Egypt is the place of safety. So the lives of the children of Abraham are preserved in Egypt. And over the centuries, they thrive and become a multitude, so much so that the king of Egypt now deems them a threat and even orders them to be put in slavery, lest they uprise against him. So they're growing and they're thriving and remember that they're in a separate land in Goshen where it seems that they're the predominant, the predominant ethnicity, ethnicity and they thrive. And obviously, this is some centuries later and Pharaoh decides to put them to work. So this is where we rejoin the story in the book of Exodus. So Exodus obviously ends with jo Genesis ends with Joseph, but now we move into Exodus where obviously several centuries later we now end up with this situation. So now the church doesn't look like the church. The place of Egypt is now a place of oppression. And so there needs to be a new separation developed, a new place where God's people need to be gathered in order to be distinguished from the unrighteous people. And in particular, where we meet him in Genesis, where we meet the story in, Genesis, in Exodus 1, is that Pharaoh now orders the death of the Hebrew baby boys in order to control the population. And so obviously we see the two midwives, they decide not to go through with this particular order. And then God's like, and then, you know, many, many babies' lives are obviously preserved. And in particular, Moses is preserved. And Moses is going to now be the person that God will work through in order to create this new separation. Just like he worked with Joseph, Moses was going to end up out of the land, cast away. And that new separation will now develop, where Moses will now call people to be with God as he is led by God. So God will again and step in and develop the church by calling out the families of Israel, the Israelites, now a multitude, in order that they will become a nation under him. And this time, the wilderness, and then eventually the land, which is Canaan, will become the type of the church. So where will, I, where, do people, where will God's people in this particular time need to be saved? Well, when Moses comes and proclaims the deliverance and the salvation of God, the wilderness will now become the church, the place of safety. If the people of God are going to be who they need to be, then they're going to have to separate themselves from the rebellious world. Our coming together, even this morning, as a people who seems to enact this separation, which is a witness to the world, that they are under the condemnation of God. This is something I didn't want to pass by, that, that our very act of coming here is, is repeating that pattern. Where is the place of safety? With God's people. And we enact that, coming out. So where, where will we be saved? 
where the church is. And we're a witness to that because we separate ourselves from the ungodly world around us. It also reminds us of who we are. We are God's people. So we can see the dangers of not following through with what God is doing. And not allowing ourselves to follow this pattern and reminding ourselves day, week, week, day by day, week by week, that we are God's people. We are separate from the world. Because like you said, there is not, as it were, one place anymore. Because again, the, the vision of God is moving. It's now within the local churches throughout the world. where We are enacting this whole idea of going to the place of safety. So again, it's like that picture of the ark, isn't it? But there's an issue also for Israel, and also maybe for us. Probably more likely for us as well as for them, isn't it? Where it's very easy to physically leave somewhere, and even from the horrors of slavery, but it's another thing to leave it mentally. And this is what we witness as we see the story develop. And in particular, we're not going to read it today, but it's something to worth, if you're writing notes, to take. But Numbers 11, this whole idea of the people looking back on Egypt with nostalgic eyes. Well, there was slavery, yeah, but we got to eat whatever we wanted to eat. I was free. And maybe we go and look back at our old lives and we're like, you know, yeah, but man, I loved my clubbing. It was great. I loved the way, I loved my lifestyle. I, I, I was not bored like I am now having to eat this, as they said in Numbers 11, this manna. The provision of God. What's this? They said it tastes like pancakes. Pancakes every day. And we can get bored and we can sometimes look back at our old lives with that nostalgia and suddenly think, actually, I was better off there. Even though it was slavery. That's why I find that particular, Numbers 11, so intriguing. Because it, it reminds us that we can't just leave somewhere physically. It's not just about the process of coming to church it's been able to leave and understand that the life I've left behind, I really have left it behind. Why is this important? Well, Paul makes a similar connection for us as well, being the church. And he alludes to the children of Israel, particularly in the wilderness. And we see this, again, I'm not going to read, but 1 Corinthians 10, isn't it? This whole idea that many people came out of Egypt... But they didn't escape the fact that they were, their hearts were still in Egypt. And, and obviously we get this pattern again in Peter where he talks about remember Lot's wife. That our hearts are still where the world is. And so it's not enough merely to come to church or come into the wilderness, come to the place of safety if our hearts are not really in it. And so that's something for us to think about as we develop this idea of what the church is and see how important it is to look back 
at the same time in order to look forward and to look into where we are now. But it's important to note that as soon as God saves them from Egypt, he then takes them to church. And this is where we come in Exodus 19 to Sinai. I haven't just saved you so that you can now wander around and do whatever you want to do. I've now come and gathered you to the place where you will worship me. Saved to worship. And this is the same pattern we've seen right from the beginning, isn't it? From when, obviously, Seth's line comes and now people are starting to praise the Lord again. The difference this time is that there are now enough people to make a nation of worshippers. So it's not like the small numbers anymore. And again, this is something that we need to remember. Whether the church looks small, again, remember the ark, you know, eight people saved. Oh, the church is small. Oh, look at us, our, our numbers depleted. You come to moments like this at Sinai where all of a sudden there's a multitude of people gathered. And now they're the worshipping community, given not all of them, but now there is a multitude. And again, it reminds us where this all ends, isn't it? In Revelation 7, the multitudes of people, the church is more than what you see. And so we are never to think, oh man, we're a minority, that's never the picture we're given. But the highlights where sometimes in the world where all of a sudden the earthly reality to some extent reflects the heavenly reality. And I think Sinai is that point where we suddenly see that actually God is in the business of saving many people and not just a handful. That's not always going to be true of history. But it was certainly true here that the multitude of people are being saved, and we can't miss that. So the difference this time is, that, as, as I said, it's, that it's now a nation of worshippers. And following from last week, we could see this also as a partial fulfillment of what God promised to Abraham, that his, his direct descendants will be numerous. This is not the many nations yet. This is not the many kings yet, but it's certainly that his people are now plenteous. And so this is where we meet. And so I want to read in Exodus 19. So turn there if you can. And we'll read the whole chapter. So this is where they come. So on the third moon, I'm reading from the ESV, by the way. On the third new moon after the people of Israel had gone out of the land of Egypt, on that day they came into the wilderness of Sinai. They set up from, they set up from Rephidim and came into the wilderness of Sinai, and they encamped in the wilderness. There Israel encamped before the mountain, while Moses went up to God. The Lord called to, them, to him out of the mountain, saying, Thus you shall say to the house of Jacob, and tell the people of Israel, you yourselves have seen what I did to the Egyptians and how I bore you on eagles' wings and brought you to myself. Now, therefore, if you will indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant, you shall be my treasured possessions among all the peoples, for all the earth is mine. And you shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. These are the words that you shall speak to the people of Israel. 
So Moses came and called the elders of the people and set before them all these words that the Lord had commanded him. All the people answered together and said, all that the Lord has spoken, we will do. And Moses reported the words of the people to the Lord. And the Lord said to Moses, behold, I am coming to you in a thick cloud that the people may hear when I speak with you and may also believe you forever. When Moses told the words of the people to the Lord, the Lord said to Moses, go to the people and consecrate them today and tomorrow and let them wash their garments and be ready for the third day. For on the third day, the Lord will come down on Mount Sinai in the sight of all the people. And you shall set limits for the people all around, saying, Take care not to go up into the mountain or touch the edge of it. Whoever touches the mountain shall be put to death. No hand shall touch him, but he shall be stoned or shot. Whether beast or man, he shall not live. When the trumpet sounds a long blast, they shall come up to the mountain. So Moses went down from the mountain to the people and consecrated the people. They washed their garments, and he said to the people, Be ready for the third day. Do not go near a woman. On the morning of the third day, there were thunders and lightnings and a thick cloud on the mountain and a very loud trumpet blast, so that all the people in the camp trembled. Then Moses brought the people out of the camp to meet God, and they took their stand at the foot of the mountain. Now Mount Sinai was wrapped in smoke because of the Lord had descended on it in fire. The smoke of it went up like the smoke of a kiln, and the whole mountain trembled greatly. And as the sound of the trumpet grew louder and louder, Moses spoke, and God answered him in thunder. The Lord came down on Mount Sinai to the top of the mountain, and the Lord called Moses to the top of the mountain, and Moses went up. And the Lord said to Moses, go down and warn the people, lest they break through to the Lord and to look and look to look and many of them perish. And let the priests who came near to the Lord consecrate themselves, lest the Lord break out against them. And Moses said to the Lord, the people cannot come up to Mount Sinai, for you yourself warned us, saying, set limits around the mountains and consecrate it. And the Lord said to him, go down and come up, bring in Aaron with you, and do not let the priests the priests and the people break through to come up to the Lord, lest he break out against them. So Moses went down to the people and told them. So this is the word of God. This is an interesting period, isn't it? Because now we start to see something like church. Now, it's not how we know it. But all of a sudden now, we're starting to see that formation within history where it was not enough that God has saved you, but that now we are gathered together in a place of communal worship to God. It's not, every, it's not left down to every individual to now wander off, you know, you're now, got, you're now free. You know, I guess you can think of, you know, maybe even... Let's think more, you know, the emancipation of the black slaves in America. You know, everyone now goes to wherever they want to go. It's not like that. They're now gathered to a specific place. And not to go off and contemplate their own salvation by themselves. But to come into community. And God wants to meet with them. And he comes down and, he, and, he, and it comes in 
you know, so there are parts where the people are contributing by blowing the trumpets. And then God adds all the other effects by bringing down, coming down in the thick cloud and, we can, you know, and the thunder and the lightning. So there's this dazzling display visually. Verb, you know, audibly. No doubt you could smell the presence of what was going on. It was different than if you had went to Sinai at any, at any particular point. There was a direct move of God to let you know that this was where the presence of God was. And that to be anywhere else was to not be in the presence of God. Though obviously he states, even in his own chapter, that the whole world is mine. I can be anywhere, but he concentrates his presence in Sinai to reveal himself to his people. And this is important because, again, it's an important pattern that we pick out from church, the biblical narrative, in order to highlight the importance of what we're doing in this series, that church community matters. And it's something that God develops himself. It's not what we are doing in order to basically consolidate our own power. But it's what God is calling us to do. Now, we come to Hebrews 12. And Hebrews 12 is important because now it's talking to Jewish Christians. And it contrasts itself about, well, what church was then to now show us what church is like now. And there are huge differences that we shouldn't sweep under the carpet. Because many people would look back to something like Exodus 19 and see, well, this is what we got to do. And, you know, and again, many of the things, if those of you have followed in the book, some of the things that Chris Green says is true about how churches have been developed to kind of replicate the Sinai experience. When you walk in to St. Paul's Cathedral, the intimidation of the walls, the intimidation of the, the whole aura, the whole idea of having these, you know, like you said, you're not, you're not got like 10, 20 people choirs, you've got literally maybe 100 people chanting and singing and creating an atmosphere. You've got the priest swinging the, the censer as he comes down, you know, um, with the procession into the thing. There's this whole idea that church needs to replicate this whole idea of the majesty of God as it was witnessed at Sinai. And we're not just talking about high churches either. The high churches being, you know, Church of England, Roman Catholicism. But even low churches, especially American churches, want to replicate this whole idea of the intimidating presence of God. Even to the point where there's this veneration of the altar, isn't it? You know, you can't come, you know, got the armor bearers. I know Brother C is going to laugh here, isn't it? You've got the people at the front, you know, you can't come to the front. You can't, you can't break, again, like they said, they look at it, you can't break through. <laughs> I, I, I probably even wouldn't even put it past the Americans to even have, those guys are probably even strapped, right? <laughs> you can't break through to the presence of God. Now... <laughs> 
is why we're going to go to Hebrews 12, because I think there's a point of check in sometimes all of this. And for all the smoke, and for all the grandeur, we can sometimes miss the point of what church is, just like those Israelites did. Why am I here? Is it so that I can be intimidated by God? Or is there something deeper? And I think that what you get in Hebrews 12 is that picture of, no, I'm not here to intimidate you. But I've come to call you in to faith in me. So let's turn to Hebrews 12. Reading from verse 18. Again, reading from the ESV. For you have not come. So let's stop there. This is important. Because this is that point where now I will jump off from this and say, there's a point of continuity and discontinuity with the Old Testament. And we need to make that demarcation. We need to be able to understand that the time we're living in works on different principles, though even though they may overall look the same. They come to the same thing. So you have not, for you have not come to what, you, what may be touched. Again, let's stop there. Again, it's that clue there is that even though Sinai was a very physical presence, the writer of Hebrews is saying, I'm not talking about a physical encounter with God, primarily. It's a genuine encounter with God, but remember, we can have genuine encounters with something and not see it. And that's important. For you have not come to what may be touched, a blazing fire and darkness and gloom and a tempest and the sound of a trumpet and a voice whose words may the hearers beg for no further message to be, be spoken to them. For they could not endure the order that was given. If even a beast touches the mountain, it shall be stoned. Indeed, so terrifying was the sight that Moses said, I tremble with fear. But you have come to Mount Zion and to the city of the living God and the heavenly Jerusalem and to innumerable angels in festal gathering. And to the assembly, again, remote that word, the gathering and the assembly, ecclesia, ecclesia, of the firstborn who are enrolled in heaven and to God and the judge of all and to the spirits of the righteous made perfect and to Jesus, the mediator of a new covenant and to the sprinkled blood that speaks a better word than the blood of Abel. See that you do not refuse him who, who is speaking. For if you did not escape, if they did not escape when they refused him who warned them on earth, much less will we escape if we reject him who warns from heaven. At that, that time, his voice shook the earth. But now he has promised, yet once more, I will shake not only the earth, but also the heavens. 
This phrase, yet once more, indicates the removal of things that are shaken. That is, things that have been made in order that the things that cannot be shaken may remain. Therefore, let us be grateful for receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken. And thus, let us offer to God acceptable worship with reverence and awe. For our God is a consuming fire. Let me speak a little bit to the context of Hebrews before I kind of maybe unpack some of the things. I'm not going to go through the text because, like I said, we're trying to, again, look at the theme of, of, of the church. But I've, always, I've already given you some of the highlights that I want you to take note of. But the, remember, again, we don't know who wrote Hebrews. But it was right into a community of Jews that were tempted to go back to Judaism. If you know anything about church history, especially the first, I guess you would say, two centuries, maybe even the first three centuries, it was very difficult to be a Jewish Christian. You would be, to be a Jewish Christian, and especially to be in a minority place, wherever you were in the Roman Empire, meant that you would be excluded from the community of the saints. They would have, obviously, again, much of they like Muslims would do, they'll have a funeral for you that you've dead. And ultimately, no one would support your businesses. So all that idea of having the, the community having your back, you lost that. And so sometimes you were just reliant on the smaller Christian community around you, and maybe only the other patrons, like the other Roman citizens, who would come and help you. And the temptation was to basically just say, well, look, I'm just going to go back to Judaism. I can't survive outside of the, the, the synagogue system. I just need to go back. And the writer is writing them to tell them, no, don't do it. Why go back to an old, dead system that cannot help you? Glorious as it was. And he, does, he makes a great note of saying that these things were not irrelevant. The priesthood and the temple and the sacrifices, they were all relevant, but the main thrust of the argument of Hebrews is talking about how the superior thing has come and superseded it. There's no point looking back. There's no point going back to that which was dead. So this whole idea that Jesus, the new system, is so much better that going back would kill you. I mean, spiritually. How will you survive? I think what is highlighted in Hebrews, amongst other letters, but in particular in Hebrews, is that sometimes the, what we struggle with, even as Christians today, is, that, is, the, is what we call the continuity and discontinuity with the Old Testament. You know, I kind of alluded to it in some of the other ones where people, and again, especially within legalistic struggle, believe that they try to form a kind of a Jewish Christianity certain laws of, uh, and, and, and believing that they're somehow supplementing the new covenant with, this, with the old covenant and somehow they're, they're arrived at somewhere better. And we saw this within Galatians and we saw this within Colossians last week that, the, that we've, we've got something even better. We've, we've mixed the best of both worlds. And Paul obviously has to go to great works to demolish this idea that no, it just doesn't work that way. And I think this particular point, his final argument, where he takes them to Mount Sinai, is important because it's highlighting the truth. That 
it is more important to engage with the heavenly reality of who you are than it is to engage with any kind of experience that you can have in a church setting. If you're not engaging with the heavenly reality of who you are, then none of this else, nothing, none of this else matters. The setting, no matter how grand, the sensor, no matter how sweet it smells, the music, no matter how heavenly, it, it's all smoke and mirrors. It leads to nothing. If we do not engage with the heavenly reality, if we're not worshipping with heaven, and that, we're all, that our only encounter is with the physical presence of, of what we see around us, then we are not really doing church as it was supposed to be. We understand with this whole issue of continuity and discontinuity that we can't throw the baby out with the bathwater, though. It's not like as if there isn't a tradition, like even now be appealing even to the Old Testament, is to say that the, the Old Testament really has something to say about what it means to be a, the part of the community of God. So it's not like we say, well, you know what, as so many people really do, whether literally or just symbolically, let's just disregard the Old Testament. Some people would much rather their church be a church, believe it or not, just with the, with the New Testament. And I've seen people argue this. Big believing Bible preachers. I'm not going to name names. But argue, go on premiere, argue. We could just do without the Old Testament. Big ministers. Sincerely arguing. It's understanding that how these things contribute to us, and to some extent, if we kick away that foundation, we end up with nothing. We don't end up with what we have. So what do we gain? Well, look, a simple way of assessing what has changed from what hasn't. And again, we can't go into the big Bible study as I would like to here. But let, let me kind of get the highlights to understand that what Jesus, that Jesus doesn't eradicate the Jewish system. The system of worship, then, uh, you know, the system of worship that Jews had, what Jesus does is he comes in and he perfects it. Matthew 5, 17. Do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the, or the prophets. I have, come to ab not, I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. So far from being defunct, that is the Old Testament and the old Jewish way of doing it, it was a placeholder for the perfect. For this reason, Jesus became the perfect prophet who ushers in a new age, but the venue is not Sinai anymore, but it's now Calvary. And so that's the difference. So the, the, the better than Moses has arrived. But the high point isn't Sinai with the faith. It's his death on the cross. So the cross now becomes central, and he fulfills that. I am the prophet you've been looking for. 
He becomes the perfect high priest. Again, this is exactly what Hebrews, the writer of Hebrews are, uh, argues, who offers the perfect sacrifice of himself. So he himself is the perfect priest, and he offers the perfect sacrifice of himself as the Lamb of God. So much so that it makes any other sacrifice unnecessary. He is finally the perfect king who rules as one completely submitted to God. And not as Adam or David, who ruled in so many ways righteously, but again, these men fell off. And they lost track of their purpose and they died. It's so important, this last fact, about the fact that they die, because in contrast to them, Jesus doesn't suffer the indignity of death. Why is this important to us? Because he is an eternal king. He's an eternal high priest, and he's an eternal prophet. He doesn't die, and therefore he is vindicated by God and raised from the dead, and therefore the establisher of a new covenant. So that way, the system is perfected. And then what we do is that ultimately, Jesus becomes what some would term the perfect Jew. And then we live his life. And so, in that sense, the Jewish system... So, if you can follow my argument, you see the logic of trying to add the Jewish system onto you as though you're supplementing the work of what God has already done. Jesus has already become the perfect Jew. And we live in that. And so that's the fulfillment. So it's not like the system is completely dead, but it's like we now live in Christ, and Christ now fulfills that. So in Hebrews 12, the writer now makes his final appeal to why the Jewish diaspora, the Jews living outside of Jerusalem, 19, that final, his final argument where we, where we meet the text today, and the meeting at Sinai that he takes them. I think it's important for us to follow his argument because it has implications for us today. Even though our circumstances may be different, we may nonetheless have similar urges for a spiritual experience that is inconsistent with the new covenant in Jesus Christ. So we might be seeking those experiences. Say, you know, I, I want to go back to a system that I think helps me but die. So what was the marks? What, was, what were we seeing? And again, let me go through the highlights of what was in Exodus 19. What may be touched, that is, there was a physical reality to the, the, the meeting at Sinai. So in a sense, that presence of God. A blazing fire, darkness, gloom, a tempest, that strong winds blowing at that time. The sound of trumpet, the voice whose words made the hearers beg. In other words, they were scared of what they heard from the mountain of God. Now look at the seven marks of the heavenly meeting in contrast to the seven marks of 
the, the Sinai meeting. He says, now we have come to, one, Mount Zion and to the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem. So the heavenly Jerusalem is important because it is done in contrast to the earthly Jerusalem where the temple would have been. Innumerable angels in festal gatherings. Number two, three, the assembly of the firstborn who are enrolled in heaven. In other words, we are living, again, that Jesus, we're the firstborn of Jesus, born again into Jesus' life. God, the judge of all. We're going directly to God now. We're not, remember, the contrast was that Moses now and the, 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 the 70 elders now became judges and ultimately you appealed to them and they would now take your case before God. Now we come into the throne rule to the judge of all. So there's no longer this whole idea of, you know, again, remember this whole idea of, of modern high church as well, this whole idea that the, the priest becomes an intermediary because it's taking these ideas from the old system, and bringing them in there, but I've got to go to the priest who now makes a judgment for me before God and then ultimately comes back. And it's using the old covenant, ultimately, to now speak into the new. Making the new covenant, no, because it, you're telling people you can't have a relationship with God. You can't allow God to judge you directly. Obviously, there's a space for judgment amongst the elders of the church, but... Ultimately, all believers stand before their own judge, who is God. Number five, the spirits of the righteous made perfect. Again, the perfection of, in, of being in Christ. Number six, Jesus, the mediator of a new covenant. So again, it's a reminder that things have changed. That there is a new covenant which we, are, we work under. And there are seven sprinkled blood that speaks a better word than that of Abel. In other words, this whole idea of vindication. You know, Abel died and his blood you know, called for justice. Jesus died and what did he say? Forgive them, Lord, they know not what they do. It's the whole idea of grace, being in that time of grace. And, and Jesus highlights this, whereas our blood would speak for vengeance. So get me vengeance, and again, rightly so. In these times, you don't want to, you know, like, oh, well, you know, you just got to, you know, skip the justice. But in our, in our modern context, we need justice in our modern context. But Jesus, in terms of his administration of the new, new, new covenant, grace. Father, forgive them. What you get from, especially those seven points, is that this grasping of the heavenly reality first and foremost by faith. And not by stimulating our senses to conduct, you know, to connect emotionally with God. In other words, we can, going back to my introduction, we can be so geared up for an experience and, and judging my encounter with any particular local church, on the experience I have. And now, I'm not discounting that. But to primarily to say, well, that was more important than was the presence of God there. Could you connect to God? 
was first and foremost. Now, I believe that a church environment can be so distracting to the point where even if I wanted to and come and primarily made it my focus, it can be very difficult being in, some, in certain places. I, I believe that it's possible. But I believe that most church settings I can walk into around the world, I have that ability to connect with God. Despite whether I think the, the singer is singing the tunes I like. Despite the fact whether it was cold, cool enough for me or hot enough for me. That all of a sudden, you suddenly realize that where the primacy is, was, was it enough to stop me from connecting with God? Was I going into that heavenly place where, again, what we see the completion of in, in, in Revelation 7, was I able to see in my own mind's eye that I'm with all the other angels singing with God, singing to the glory of God? Was that denied me? And you suddenly realize that actually, probably not. That I was so enamored with an emotional experience that I believe would help usher me into that presence of God that I myself wasn't prepared to do myself and set my own conditions. Chris Green makes an important point here and I'm going to quote him directly as opposed to say it in my own words. He says this, the awe, wonder, transcendence, and mystery that we crave is not produced by candles, medieval architecture, Latin chants and incense, nor by echoing the emotional impact of contemporary music festivals such as Glastonbury or Burning Man. Instead, it is produced by the gospel, by the awareness that by faith we participate in this heavenly assembly. The writer of Hebrews also says this in Hebrews 4.2. Speaking of that, those original Israelites who met at Sinai and obviously came into the promised land. For good news came to us just as to them. But the message they heard did not benefit them because they were not united by faith with those who listened. So it's, my struggle is ultimately not to get the church up to speed to where I think it needs to be, but where my faith is in that ability to connect with God. The fact that I know that regardless of whether this church locally is worshipping up to tune is that ultimately the heavenly realm certainly is. And that's what we're connected with. That's what the writer of Hebrews says. We are no longer trying to witness the presence of God and just stay and spectators. We are now invited to come into the heavenlies and join in worship. That's what's changed. And that's why I think it's important why the 
he prefaced this, we have not come to a place that we can physically touch. So the duty then is to connect the congregation with the heavenly reality of the gospel and not mere spectacle designed to affect a sense of awe and mystery where, again, we, we, we want to be that heavenly. We want to say, don't focus on the heavenly. We're going to make it here on earth. And I'll show you the dangers of that where we, where we, where we want to distract people from being a part of that heavenly community and say, we don't need to look it up. So the aim is that we are moved by the gospel and how that connects with us, with the heavenly community, and not merely through the setting. The danger is that we end up in a golden calf territory where worship is... And we take it upon ourselves to create the environment of awe in order to worship. In other words... Rather than join in and, and kind of say, well, I want to allow you to enter into that heavenly festival. Don't look up. Don't bother. We've got everything here. Don't look to your God. Don't, don't be involved with the gospel. Everything that you need is here in this environment. And we're bringing heaven on earth. And that's the golden calf. That's worship that's not connected to heaven. That's the whole idea of we are bringing it down. It's the Tower of Babel again. Again, that theme, Lord help me to, you know, because again, that's another theme of that whole Babel, Babylon, all the way through to Revelations. The whole idea of false religion. That theme of false religion that comes under the banner of Babylon and not merely restricted to the area of Babylon. And so we can go into an environment that really is distracting because I'm not connecting with God because I can see that the environment wants me to focus on everything happening here. Don't look up. Look here. That's the golden calf. Chris Green is important, you know, another good quote here. We cannot assume that we know what appropriate worship is but must listen to God telling us we cannot unthinkably transfer patterns of worship from our culture or history lest we fall into the golden calf trap. So often we're looking for ideas amongst ourselves and, you know, what do you think will we'll get more people in? And, you know, well, this is, this is the kind of, this is the style of music people listen to. Let's just just switch, this, you know. Again, there's so many temptations in life to, as it were, say, we don't know what's happening with this whole act. We don't know where this move of God is coming. We can't be bothered. Where is this man Moses? Let's just do our own thing rather than taking time and say, Lord, come together in prayer and, 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 and say, Lord, direct our, our Sunday team from how we set up the chairs to the songs we sing, to how we do what we do. Lord, you lead us. Show us what you want. I don't want no one to come into this environment and be distracted from the heavenly reality that you want them to connect with. I don't believe I have, it's, it's all down to us. But we're going to try hard. 
to connect them with, with that heavenly reality. And we're certainly not going to shortchange it. So looking back to the Hebrew community in which the letter was written, it would be unreasonable to assume that the primary impulse to go back to the Jewish community was to have a dynamic worship environment. I don't think that was the priority. He mentions this, but that was not the priority. What I believe lay at the heart of any desire to go back was their survival. Mentally and physically. And we may find ourselves in a similar temptation in our own time where our desperation to survive as a local church leads us to consider ideas that are regressive in authentic worship. But then we package it up as progressive. So sometimes we want to create that environment where we can survive. And that's the temptation that we even face now, right? I just want to survive. So many churches closing down and we can get desperate. We need to hear from God and allow him to lead our development in worship, which extends, again, worship, which extends beyond Sunday into our whole lives. And that's another important development that we come in the mode of worship to worship. I'm not coming to, get, to allow people to get me into the mood for worship. We come in worship. Our lifestyle is worship. You know, we must remember that Sinai was chosen to give Israel a particularly sensory experience of Yahweh. No doubt, a sense of terror and awe and majesty. But we must consider their context. He was taking a people who, knew, who didn't know him out of paganism and to some extent was forcing his experience into them. Believe me because this is what it is. That, that concentration of signs and wonders was to stimulate people to believe. But the signs and wonders themselves were not what they were to have faith in. But it was to show them that I am a God like no other. Connect with me spiritually, in faith. So we must also consider our own take on the setting and gatherings and, and what to communicate to the senses and, and to the mood of the congregation. How do we learn to do this better? How do we learn when we feel that there's a time where obviously we want to connect, with, where especially if the, within the context of the nation, you know, like a few weeks ago, we, we took the time to consider a time of mourning with the rest of the nation for the death of Queen Elizabeth II. And so we, we, we realized that the mood might need to reflect that. Where well, I believe one of God's saints was taken and we needed to reflect on that and give thanks for that even. So, how do you speak to a pagan culture? Well, I think that Sinai experience was one way. But it didn't stop them from a number of chapters later in Exodus 32, again, creating the golden calf experience. 
So you can have that great experience of God's presence and still end up in a place where you feel like, I still want to do my own version of it. Because again, as the writer from Hebrews says, because they didn't connect in faith. So Mount Sinai may have captured their senses and even their emotions as they felt greatly intimidated by the scene, but did not arrest their hearts into obedience. To be captivated by the grace of God, delivering us from bondage and slavery to sin, and, and slavery to sin is the place we need to be in order for us to be able to appreciate the motivation to worship. Without the gospel taking the lead, we are merely entertaining ourselves. So if the gospel is not at the heart as of I'm connecting with that which has saved me, I'm connecting with the, 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 the God who has saved me, then anything we're doing is just entertaining ourselves. The challenge then is how to engage with the gospel and ask ourselves if we really believe that grace has set the stage for me to worship God in spirit and in truth. So even that term, in spirit and truth, alludes to, on purposely by me, to John 4, where Jesus meets the woman at the well. And she is presenting her own case for legitimate worship outside of Jerusalem on the mountains of Ephraim. And again, it's that cultural trap, isn't it? However, she was, not a, un, she was seemingly unaware that the form of worship that she was engaged in was derived from a king's political decision to consolidate power for himself. She had no idea, it seemed, that Jeroboam had set up this whole fake worship on the mountain so that he didn't lose power to the southern tribes of Judah. That was the whole purpose of, where, of what she was doing. And there she was arguing with Jesus that this is legitimate worship. And Jesus has to say to her, you have no idea what you're doing. political decision and in the church environment we're not exempt from making political decisions in order to consolidate power it's connection with God that matters am I leading the people in that the potential dangers of being creative in our worship. Again, um, I won't read it, but Leviticus, Leviticus 10, 1 and 2, Nabdab and Abihu, we find bring strange fire before the Lord. You know, I've been a bit creative and didn't do what God had prescribed and they lost their lives for it. The danger today is that God doesn't strike people down when they offer inauthentic worship, or not necessarily but it's to be aware. So let's land this. So what is, our, what is our role? What is our application? Well, we need to hear the instructions of God through the Scriptures. We're to go to the Bible. How do we worship God better? How do we better lead the people? How do we make this an environment that when people come through these doors, they are connecting to that heavenly reality, the one that matters, 
so that everything around us, no matter how posh this week, we could get the best of churches. We don't want them this, this to be the focus. We want them to be comfortable. This is, this is my point. It's not that these things are not important. But what I, like I said, what, what I do judge is that sometimes people believe that unless certain criteria are met, they can't connect with God. And then I'm, I would say to that person, then you are not engaged in authentic, gospel-centered worship. Where you yourself are not living a life of worship, you need the environment. You need a golden calf experience in order to connect with God. We do not assume absolute creativity in how we approach this. In other words, we're not in a situation where anything, anything goes. Because again, Leviticus 10 reminds us that, that there's a danger of that as well. And this is not to deny the use of creativity as we think through how we organize our communal worship. As I said, we need to think these things through. Here we must stress that the gospel is at the center of all that, though, we do. And it's what connects us all. We're all, you know, again, that temptation to create a kind of a, a monolithic culture, a monocultural church where we're trying to look at what really has us in common. And if we focus on that, and this is my point, and if we make the gospel our focus, I believe that we can have that greater diversity because we won't want to be a distraction to anybody that walks through that door, whether rich or poor, black or white. Everyone can connect because that's our focus. And the gospel is the only thing that we look to that keeps us all in common. And we want that to be at the center of everything. The gospel. How is the Lord saving you this week, my brother, my sister? Those are the, at the center of our conversations. As opposed to, well, I share a similar interest to you. Let's talk about that. But when we focus more on the gospel, we can all connect. I don't have to, oh, I can relate to where you're at because I'm in a similar situation to you. Those are nice, but the gospel. Again, here we must reflect on the golden calf incident and consider what's going on there. Moses was on the mountain receiving the instructions of God of how to worship God, and they were doing their own form of worship. In other words, we need to be patient. One, the perfect will never come here. We're not going to be able to do Revelation 7 here. It's already happening. And that's what I want to... It's there where, you are, where, where the focus is. That's where the perfect is. It will not be perfect here. And when, we, when we're satisfied with that, when we're, we're, we're free then to just say, Lord, whatever communicates that is good enough for me. As long as I'm not distracting from that, it's good enough for me. Let's be patient to do that well. We need to work on how we capture the awe of God through the mind and not merely through relying on senses and experiences to connect us to that heavenly realm. And this is not just like, oh, well, the people that with the better imaginations are going to have a step forward here. But again, we can read the gospel for ourselves and understand that a great work has been done in us. We don't have to use our imaginations to realize what God has saved us from. And we can just use that and say, that's enough. 
to connect to me. We need to account for the fact that worship is not merely the music segment before and after the sermon, but all aspects of life of the believer as well. So that was a point I picked up, is that we need to extend worship beyond there. And that was one of the things that the Jews got wrong. They believed that what they did in the temple mattered, but everything outside the temple was fair game. Read Jeremiah 7 as a reminder of how God had to show them that you can't come to the temple and feign this piety and then go out and live your life however you want. Holding people up, bagging people up, robbing people, murdering people, and then come and say, oh, I'm in the temple of God. And then this is the only place that counts. Worship is for all of life and what we do. So my two points is that one, if we one, we make the gospel and connect it to the gospel the most important thing. And two, and which is, subs, which is su- supportive of that, is that how do we then work on the environment? So not to distract people, but to encourage people and how to worship God, to connect to that heavenly reality and how we do that. And let's be patient as we pray for God to give us those clues. So in conclusion, let me read from Romans 12, 1 to 2. I appeal to you, therefore, brothers and sisters, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind, that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. Join us next time for more of God's truth to transform your reality.